today, we're going to talk about that story and put it in the context of um, what Jesus was doing. And if, if I can put it in the context of our series, what we're trying to talk about during this series leading up to Easter um, is who was Jesus really? What, what was he actually talking about and doing? And, and then to help us make a decision as to whether or not we would want to follow him. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're like, duh, I've been following him for a long time. And perhaps that's true, but perhaps it's also true, or it could be true, that you've been following a version of Jesus that someone told you along the way. And we talked in the introduction about like a telephone game. Anybody play a telephone game? And it starts, someone says one thing, then it's passed on to the next person. And we, we have a 2,000-year-old telephone game trying to get to the original Jesus. What, what was the original Jesus of Nazareth really about? What kind of things was he saying and doing? And it culminates this week, um, Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to talk about it. And so first of all, if you're a long-time follower, then this would be a great review. If you're uh, a skeptic, if you're a person that said, boy, this is something that's a bunch of nonsense that I left when I was able to get out of my house at 16, um, maybe it's worth thinking again. In other words, you may want to take a second look at who Jesus actually was and what he actually did. And then some of us, it's a pause at the beginning of what we call Holy Week to reflect, to meditate, to think about what Christ actually did. And for some of you that are totally ignorant about the whole thing, it just gives you something to talk about at your next cocktail party, all right? So there's something for everyone today, and I want to look at the story we call Palm Sunday. Before I read, I'm going to read from Mark's gospel. Let me give you a little setting, a little background as to what was happening in Jerusalem at that time. Now, back up. We said last week that Jesus was going around and his life was in danger because of the kinds of things that he was saying and doing were a threat to the people in power in that day. The Romans had come in and taken over their land. Uh, the people of Israel were, were um, underneath the Roman authority and power. And Jesus started to um, lead a movement, and it started to make people nervous. And so he became a wanted man. And he started to, he had to hide. He couldn't go to public events like the one we're going to talk about today, he had to stay in small, remote places because people were looking for him to take his life. In fact, they put a warning out to other people, and they said, if you find the whereabouts of Jesus of Nazareth, you should report them, him, his whereabouts to the uh, authorities, officially a wanted man. Let there be light. <laughs> Thank you. That's lovely. I, I thought no one was here, but I was just doing a warm-up for the... 
Good to see you. Um, and so the, the, story of, the story of Palm Sunday needs to be put in its context so you can appreciate what was actually happening. So there was a festival. There were three major festivals that most people that were Jewish in that day would migrate to Jerusalem for. This was the Passover. And so people were coming into the city. To give you a little more context, um, historians are debating how many people came into Jerusalem for that festival. Jerusalem was a pretty large city for its day, um, and it had about 80,000 people. But during the Passover, it would swell in size. The low estimate would be there were 100,000 pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. The high estimate, uh, a man named Josephus, there's a historian that if you were to read about Jesus outside of the Bible, this is just, just, just for grins, all right? If you were to read about Jesus outside of the Bible, like, is there any history about Jesus outside of this? There actually is. A guy named Josephus. One, two, three. Josephus. There you go. That was free. Wrote about Jesus. He wrote about all kinds of things in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem at that time. And he said he thought there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. So whatever the number was, it was jam-packed. Anybody ever go to the big house for a game? Oh, you get 100,000 people together, and then, uh, you know, like, and then you have the other 100,000, like, don't have tickets, like me, just sitting out there, wishing I could be in. So you got a lot of people. When you get a lot of people, things happen. How many know what I'm talking about? Just things happen. The spontaneous thing happened. Good things happen. Bad things happen. There's crowds of people. Mob mentalities can take over. There's a lot of people in this city that's not entirely meant to hold them. Just, just giving you the perspective. And so people act in certain ways. You do certain things. I just need to give you a perspective. It wasn't like people were just leisurely walking around. There were throngs of people, and it was jam-packed, and you had to think about when you were going to try to walk from this place to that place. Um, Anybody here, you get into a big crowd and you just, you got to get in the traffic right away and honk your horn. I mean, you're fun people. But you're just fun. Like, you know, a bunch of people are going to, who's with me? Like, just sit in the car, turn some music on, relax, tailgate a little bit, let people leave. Who are the let people leave people? Go ahead and raise your hand. You're the honkers. You get in there, you just get mad at everybody. Like, why isn't everyone out of my way? Because there's 100,000 people. So there's this massive crowd. And Jesus, who had been hiding out, makes this fateful ride. Now, if you know the map of the area, let's just say over here is a mountain. I mean, they call it the Mount of Olives. It would be a very tall hill. And then there's a, a valley that goes down, and then it comes back up, and then you have the city of Jerusalem. And on this next little mound, you have the temple. So Jesus is making this ride to the eastern side of Jerusalem, right where the temple was sitting. Um, I have a map for you of the city of Jerusalem. I want to show it to you, if I can. Um, different scholars have put uh, together models as to what 
Jerusalem. I'm just trying to give you a little context. Can you guys throw it up there? Is it possible? I can do that again. Like I did, let there be map. There, hey, it worked. All right. So I, th- here's the thing I want you to think about. Does anything stand out? Oh. The answer is yes. It's quite a large building there. In comparison to all the other buildings, something is quite large. Do you, you get, now, the problem is you, you don't read this in the story. You just go, oh, he went into Jerusalem. But what you need to know is he rode into Jerusalem and he went there. Now, that particular uh, picture, if you can leave it there for just a second, um, King Herod, who we learned about a few weeks ago, expanded that to about 36 acres. So the building in the middle is the, is the actual temple, the, the Holy of Holies. But he wanted more people to be able to experience it, so he expanded it. And what he did was he built retaining walls. You get the retaining wall there? So he built four retaining walls, and he filled it in and made a 36-acre. If you're wondering, guys, if you're lost, it's 29 football fields. I got a few of the guys back. That's good. All right. And it's, it's a big place. So, so they do these density models, you know, people that do counting of massive crowds and things like that. And they do density models. And they have, they have jam-packed mosh pit density. It's, it's like 2.5 people per square foot. 10 people per square foot is about like what we are here. It's like you know, people next to each other, but not on top of each other. And then what they call a tight pack, which would just be like a really good concert, is about five per square foot. So using the tight pack model, you, they, scholars estimate you could put 250,000 people on that platform. What I'm trying to get you to see is a couple of things. First of all, there were a lot of people. And the second thing I want you to see is how massive that building was. And Jesus, fully human, this is what we're emphasizing, fully human. Anybody ever, get, anybody ever go to a place where the building itself was intimidating? And they have security, and they have lots of people, and like guns and armor, and you're just like, ooh, I should walk quietly through here. A friend of mine worked uh, at the FBI, and he gave me a tour several years ago. And, and I remember walking in there, and just, just I, I was a block away from the building, and I was already nervous. Like, I know I did something wrong. I know they're going to find me. somewhere. Is anybody with me? Like, I start rehearsing. Like, I know I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. They're going to arrest me as soon as I walk in. And, you go, and there you went through two separate security screening points as opposed to you would a normal building. Fully human. He walked into Jerusalem, and he took on the temple. By looking at that map, the only thing I want you to take away is this is, it was kind of a big deal. When it says the temple, I don't want you to think like he was looking down the streets like, is the temple, is it over here? It dominated the skyline. If you stood below it, it was 10, count them, 10 stories high from the ground. And that wasn't the building. That was just to get to the platform. Uh, those, those retaining walls 
one of them still standing today, 16 feet thick. Anybody ever get a cheap retaining wall like in your garden? You might, come on, you know what I'm talking about. Like you put up those little, those little red things and they're little funny shapes and like two years later they're falling into your yard. You know? These weren't falling over. 2,000 years ago, they stand there. This was one impressive structure. This is a series about heroism. That Jesus was the ultimate hero. And heroism requires a couple of things. First of all, you have to be brave. You have to be brave. You have to be willing to face the ultimate threats. You have to, be, you have, to have courage in the, in the face of any kind of danger. And, of course, when you look at that temple, you realize there is power connected to that. That temple ruled their nation. And um, if they put it back up, they might throw it back up there real quick. I'll show you one more thing. Right next to that temple, there's only one other structure that creeped above it in height. See this little building over these little four towers? This was the fortress, Antonia Fortress, all right? No, they named everything after some kind of ruler or emperor, so they're always nodding off to somebody, right? Mark, anybody heard of Mark Antony? Cleopatra? Her bow, is that what you call it, right there? That was, they named it after him. Now, it was a little taller, and just stay with me. What they, the Romans could keep an eye on what the, the Jewish people were doing. Just, just a little sneak peek view from there. And, and guess what they kept in that fortress? The garments of the high priest. You can read all about the garments, how fancy they were in Exodus 28. If that's your, your flavor, I don't have time today. But that said something. That the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, dressed in these incredible garments. And who kept the key to the garments? The Romans. And the Roman authorities would have the power to appoint whoever was the high priest. So if you're thinking, well, that sounds like they were puppets to the Roman Empire, you're getting close. So when Jesus is staring down the Roman Empire and his own Jewish leaders who were as they say, in bed with them. He was facing the ultimate terror. As we're going to learn this week, what crucifixion means, the Romans had perfected crucifixion. Jesus knew it. Everybody around them knew it. They had seen it happen over and over and over again. This ride... When Jesus gets on this donkey, has unbelievable consequences because he came out from hiding to show himself to them. They wouldn't take him on that day. And the reason they wouldn't take him on that day was because the crowds were too big and they were too enthusiastic for Jesus. His, his following was swelling and people were looking for someone. And so they wouldn't touch him. On that day. And the next day, Jesus would ride, or he would return to the temple, and he would kick over the corruption of the money changers that were there, taking advantage of people. And he was, he was kicking his own, 
He was criticizing his own people for joining with the Romans. Now he had no friends anywhere. If you've ever studied or heard, been in church, and you heard him talk about a man named Pontius Pilate. Anybody? Pontius Pilate. The reason that Pontius Pilate's so famous is because he was the ruler in Judea at that time. And so he, when Jesus is arrested later in the week, they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate to make a decision about whether he could live or die. And Jesus presided over that, or Pontius Pilate presided over that, and handed Jesus over to be crucified. A little background on Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate lived over on the Mediterranean Sea. Nice place. I've been there. It's on the Mediterranean. King Herod had built this pretty sweet palace right there. And why be in the hubbub and the noise of Jerusalem and the dusty and it's all, he, he stayed on the sea. He had a palace there. But because he was a ruler, like a lot of other rulers, it was the place to go. Not, not only to, to be seen, as we learned that Herod came into the to the city for this festival. But Pontius Pilate came in because he had to keep security and he had to keep peace. There are two historians, um, Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, and they wrote a book called The Last Week. And they're they're quite serious historians. I mean, they they dive way into this. And they talk about how, do you know, Pontius Pilate also had to ride into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, this can't be proven, but this would make you think. What if on that same Sunday, there was another king arriving in Jerusalem? Not from this side over here, not from these, but from the west, from the west where the sea was. And Pontius Pilate had to come into Jerusalem and stay for the days of the festival. But it wouldn't be on a donkey. It would be on a white stallion with an absolute entourage of guards, cooks, caretakers, task doers, all kinds of people. I mean, basically to envision it like all the, the, the black SUVs of a presidential motorcade coming into town. From this side, on this side, you have a caravan. On this side, you have carpooling, Jesus in an Uber. making his way. Perhaps there were people, crowds following this parade, and perhaps there were people following this parade. You have to pick your king. Say, well, I I know where I'd be because I'm a Christian. Or would you? But it's so obvious to us that this way of Jesus, he, he, he called his movement, and, or people called it, I'm not sure, but it became known as the way. It was, it was like there's an alternative way. And people liked it, and then as you know, by the end of the week, the crowds turned against him. The people in power at that time manipulated the crowds. Pontius Pilate was a 
classic politician, just did what he needed to do to stay in power and to keep peace, collaborated with the Jewish leaders at the time. Think about this. What kind of courage did that ride take? And then think about this. Which parade would you have been at? Um, and maybe think about this. You know, we should be careful what impresses us, shouldn't we? Let me tell you something about a three-year-old. All it takes to impress a three-year-old is pink glitter. That's it. I mean, that's it. That's it. Well, girl, I don't know. If, I don't know. I mean, that's it. You can have the worst gift in the world, the worst experience in the world. Let's just get pink glitter. It's wonderful. They say don't judge a book by its cover, right? But if you're three, that's the only way you judge a book. A friend of ours buys books for Charlie, and so the other day we got a package of books and opened it up. And there were all these books in there. And so I'm trying to, of course, interest her in reading. And so I said, which one do you want to read? And they had all these interesting different books. But one book had glitter and unicorns. <laughs> which book did she choose? The thing is, we're not three, of course. But we do get impressed. I mean, the truth is, I think if we, if we were honest, all of us would admit we've been to one of the pilot parades in our life. We've just been to the power and the pomp and, the, and they just, well, I just want to go because that guy's so powerful or they're so rich or they're so famous or they're so, you know, you're a groupie. And, and you just want to be there. But then there was this other parade on this side. Because we end up following the things that we're impressed with. We just do. You may not sign up. You may not declare that you're a follower. But, but in practical terms, what we end up doing with our day-to-day -day lives is we, whatever impresses us, that's, that's who we follow. I was, I was getting ready to watch a little bit of the Masters Golf Tournament. So there's this little program that they put on about Jack Nicholas and Gary Player, two of the greats from the Masters Tournament, and, and there, it was about their friendship, but it was also about their fathers. And Jack Nicholas grew up with his dad idolizing Bobby Jones, like the, the legendary golf Bobby Jones. And so he loved Bobby Jones because his dad loved Bobby Jones. You see how this stuff works? And you're, if you're impressed with somebody, then you start to want to what? Be like them. You follow them. That's why I'm doing this series, because we're raising a generation that's not impressed enough with Jesus. And I think the reason is because we've buried him in 2,000 years of tradition and church ease, church language. I was going to read the story. Mark chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said, Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If, if anyone asks, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. 
I mean, just as an aside, we, we talked about how a lot of the words that we use in church today, they're, they're church words. But they weren't church words at the time. Lord is one of them. The saying that went around everywhere was, not Jesus is Lord. The saying was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So what you need to know is when they said Jesus is Lord, it was actually what? They were sticking it to the man. They were raging against the machine. I should start a rock group. They were, they were are you with me? They were coming against all of these, when they shout Hosanna, it means, oh, save us, oh, save us. And this, this was what Caesar had done for the world. He had saved the world. All of these titles and things that were given to Jesus were in contrast to the titles that people or Caesar had given to himself. He was going to do it differently. That's the whole thing. You ever been in a meeting or been having to go to meetings a lot, and people have so many tired ideas, and you're just like, oh. Have you? You're just like, oh, really? I mean, you're going to say that again? Like, you, anybody? It's like, anybody just like dread, I got to take a call. I got to. Anybody? I mean, just terrible meetings. And then all of a sudden you go to a meeting, and somebody says something absolutely refreshing, like, Well, that might actually work, and that, that's... Don't you think when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that some people said, man, that's refreshing. There's a different way to lead. You see, there's really two paths. There's intimidation and there's inspiration. Jesus didn't intimidate anybody. There's nothing to intimidate. One guy wrote the, just the worst book in the world, just god-awful, but put Jesus in it. Oh, it. It just makes me vomit sometimes when I read stuff and people, you know what I mean? Talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. What Jesus demands of the world. I'm like, stupid. Does he seem very demanding? No, humble. That's the recipe for a hero. Courage and humility. Courage and humility. Over here you have intimidation and power, threat and violence. And here you have goodness and mercy and love. And it's going to seem like a few days from now that love lost. But I'm here to tell you that love won that's more powerful than you might believe. They went and found the colt on the street, and as they untied it, what are you doing, they said. And they answered as Jesus told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and they sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the road. Jesus had been hiding, and people had been looking for him, both those for him and against him. But obviously, a lot of the common people were for him. He was a breath of fresh air. This is different. You know, this is different. I don't think he's doing it for himself. I don't think he's doing it so he can have power like their own Jewish leaders at that time. And they spread 
branches that they had cut from the fields. And they went ahead, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. It means, save us, save us. (laughs) Salvation, the most overused church word ever, maybe besides Jesus. This was not talking about take us to heaven. It's not what they were saying. They were saying, save us. Save us from what? Save us from this life, from these people, from this way of living. Save us. Charlie's new thing, Daddy, save me. For some reason, she loves to get terrified. I have no idea why. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And so I have to save her from mom or save her from something. And the other day we were playing, Daddy, save me. She starts screaming, Daddy, save me. She's sprinting. And I'm just like, I just try to get all the corners, the sharp edges. Anybody know I'm like the dishwasher? Get it closed because she's in save me mode. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, she's going to hit something hard. Does anybody know? And it's something bad. There's going to be blood. I know there's going to be blood. So I am trying to save you in a whole different way. And I'm getting all the sharp objects out of the way. And she just gets in this mode, save me. And I, I'll pick her up. And she's just like, she just flails around. And I, I could put my hand on her chest. And it, her, she's going, boom, 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 Just screaming, save me. And somehow she loves this game. People in that day were screaming, God save us. God save us from this oppression. I I, I can't keep going back and and re-explaining the whole context of the series. You may have to watch it, but the short version is, it's as as if Vladimir Putin would have won and come over and taken your land from you and demanded the house that you lived in and you spent your entire life working for and saving for and paying and building stone by stone, built together, now belongs to somebody else and you can live in it, but you're going to pay them for the privilege. They needed someone to save them. And Jesus offered a way that was unlike any way they had ever seen before. So let me wrap this together. I think Jesus is worth following, number one. I think he's worth following. And I think if you've decided that he's not, I don't think you've looked hard enough. And I blame some of the churches. I do. I I blame guys like me because we haven't done a good job of unpacking and unearthing 2,000 years of history where we got him buried into church ease. But I'm going to just do my best to uncover him and say "There's, there's a hero worth following. Ultimate courage, ultimate humility. Second, I'll say this. I think it's better if we admitted that we aren't following that well. But we sure are intending to. I think that's better. I think it's better than all the bumper stickers and stamps and things that we, we're done, I'm a Christian. That would be like... Me going on the golf course and saying, like, putting, like, a orange and black cover head on my driver and saying, I'm feeling Tiger-esque. 
You don't do that kind of stuff, especially when you suck. You just look stupid, and people think you're stupid. But I feel like, you know, when you say you're a Christian, you're saying, I'm Jesus-like. But how Jesus-like are we, actually? And it's okay. It's okay that we're learning, and we're trying, and we're trying to reorient our life more towards the way that he lived because it was courageous and bold and humble. And But, man, it's a tall order. But I'll tell you what. Better to aim that direction and come a little short. Come a little short than not aim at all or to have some other God-awful aim in your life. Speaking of re-understanding words that get used all the time in church, there's a word that gets used all the time in the church, hamartia. It means to miss the mark. So if you're shooting an arrow and you shoot at a target, but you kind of fall short. I remember going to Boy Scout camp when I was a little kid. And uh, I think I only made it through like three weeks of Boy Scouts, but I, I must have hit camp week or something. But I was there. I remember it because I'll never forget then this big guy. And he said, you, you can win a golden bear claw. Dude, like, hang on your thing, man. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be a man if I get that. And he said, if you hit that target, you get the, the golden bear claw club. I still remember his accent. I want to be a member of the Golden Bear Claw Club. Anyone ever try to shoot a bow and arrow if you've never shot one before? I do not have a Golden Bear Claw in my collection. <laughs> fling, fling, fling. Anybody? They're just, it's hard to do. So all of us, all of us, Hamartia, we all miss the target. That's not the issue. Perhaps the issue is what target are you shooting for? Who's the hero in your life? What's the aim? What's the direction of your life? That's what it means to repent. It's like, I got to get a better target. I got to reorient my life. And what if we all did and tried? In our own stumbling, fumbling way, imperfect way. I mean, what if there was a movement of people that say, I want to just reorient my life around the way and the style of Jesus of Nazareth. Man, that would do something. It would at least make the freeways nicer. A little more humility wouldn't hurt us. Heard a guy say this week, um, Everything that you start, assume you're wrong. And try to be a little less wrong tomorrow. 